Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians now as we take up our time in God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, we'll be in verses 9 through 11, and we'll read that in just a moment, but I want to pray before we do and ask for God's help now. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we come before you humbled by the weight of our sin and by the glory of your majesty. Lord, if we were half aware of the judgment our sin deserved, we would melt into a puddle on the ground. We would declare with Isaiah, woe is me, I am undone. And if we would consider the half of the forgiveness that's ours in Christ, we would raise our hands to the heaven in unending praise and live lives of grateful obedience to him. Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to see the glory of the cross in the light of the blackness of our depravity and your holiness? Help us to see Jesus this evening. Lord, open our eyes that we might behold the wonderful things contained in this short text. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if, if our young people are using the children's Bibles that we provide, that can be found on page 1416. I'd encourage you uh, kids to turn there as well. I'll read these three verses and then we'll take a look at what Paul has to say to us this evening. Chapter 6, verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Well, Corinth, the city into which Paul is writing, uh, was among the most wicked cities of the Roman culture. Uh, Corinth was almost a byword, even in the Roman Empire, as the sort of place uh, that you didn't want to go unless you were prepared to have uh, what some might refer to as a good time and what those in the church would refer to as a bad time. It was the, uh, perhaps the Vegas of the first century, or the San Francisco, you might say, of the first century. Uh, sin abounded, the government was wicked, and so were the inhabitants People went to Corinth because they could get away with whatever they wanted to, and they not only got away with it, they were exalted for it. The, the life of licentiousness and immorality and wickedness was uh, uh, glorified in Corinth. It's why Paul spends so much of his letters to the Corinthians dealing with issues of sin in the church, of sexual sin and lawsuits against unbelievers, which is, or against believers, which is what he's dealing with here, uh, divorce and remarriage, and so on and so forth. Corinth was a bad place. 
socially, it was on a bad track. Immorally, uh, as far as the sexual behavior of the people there, greedy in matters of money. It was an industrial complex. And every sort of heinous thing that you could imagine went on in Corinth. And now I often hear Christians sort of bemoaning our current cultural state, that things are here the worst they've ever been anywhere in all the world, Uh, that here in the 21st century in the West, in America in particular, or perhaps some of our neighboring nations, this is about as bad as it's ever been. Uh, And I think history would challenge that notion, although I don't deny the legitimacy of the concern of our uh, current cultural direction. We're not heading upward. Uh, But Corinth and 21st century America have a lot in common. Uh, The promotion of self and individualism, the exaltation of sexual sin and all sorts of perversions, greed and sinful living, uh, thievery and so forth, which we'll get to some of these things in the list uh, that Paul gives us here in this text, was the norm in the city. And the church is existing in the middle of it. Here's this Corinthian church full of believers, and bear in mind now, we're only a short bit of time from the ascension of Christ. The the Christian church uh, is new on the scene, and here we have this young group of believers wrestling with the realities of their old lives and what they've been called out of and called into by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so they find themselves uh, surrounded by perhaps family members and friends, or some of you young people may relate with the fact that their classmates in school were doing all of these wicked things and sort of trying to draw them back, come back to us, come back to the world. Don't you remember the fun we used to have? And so here they are faced with this reality of the dichotomy between the church and the world of who they were meant to be in Christ and who they had been and who the culture around them was. And it seems to me that from a a cursory glance at the book of 1 Corinthians that some of this uh, antinomian spirit had arisen within the Christian church in Corinth, that people there were believing that, you know, we've been freed from the penalty of sin. Jesus came and, and his grace has abounded all the more, of course, and so we can go back to what we were doing, which is why back in chapter 5, Paul says that there's sexual sin happening among you that even the pagans would blush to talk about. And here in chapter 6, he's talking about that the Christians are suing each other, and perhaps they're suing each other out of marriage, maybe divorce is the issue in, in view here, or over lawsuits regarding money and contracts and so forth. But one way or the other, the people in the church were not treating one another like brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, not unlike what uh, Reverend Squires mentioned this morning, that those of us from the genealogy of Jesus ought to look like him, different from the world. Well, many of us here this evening come from a background similar to Corinth, don't we? Now, I know that there are some here who were born next to the font, uh, and your first birthday gift was a bow tie and an ESV Greek interlinear. And I recognize that there are some within the Christian church uh, who have what I refer to as a type one testimony. And so there's three types of testimonies, right? The type one testimony is the person who never knows a day where Jesus Christ was not their Lord and Savior. You grew up, and right before you learned the words to twinkle, twinkle, little star, you learned the shorter catechism. 
Now, that should be the prayer of all of us parents of young children here at the church, that our children would know that reality. I pray daily that my four children would grow up with a type 1 testimony. There's also the type 2 testimony, which without show of hands, some of you fall into. You grew up outside of the church, uh, completely uh, disconnected from Christianity in any way, you were a part of the world, part of the world system. You had rejected God, whether consciously or just by, uh, by way of agnosticism. You weren't interested in things of religion. And at some point in your life, maybe through a tragic event, maybe through a friend who invited you to come to worship at a Christmas Eve service or something like that, you heard the gospel and thought to yourself, that's speaking to me. And in a moment, you were changed. You were made new. And you saw and your friends saw and observed a drastic change in your life. Uh, Type 2 testimony. That's a lot of Christians who come to faith at a later stage in life. And then there's the type 3 testimonies. These are the folks who grow up in church, hear all of the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, know all of the truths of his word and the message of the gospel, and make a decision to reject it out of hand, to go pursue hedonism and sin and immorality, to live the life they want to live according to the flesh. And at some point later in life, they're snatched up by Jesus Christ and brought into the fold of his sheep. And Type 3 testimony folks often wrestle with the question, was I really a Christian when I was young? Perhaps that's familiar to you. Or, or maybe I wasn't, I couldn't have been if I did those things and so on and so forth. I often find that the type 2 and type 3 testimony folks are really jealous of the type 1s. And sometimes the type 1s, if they're being honest, are kind of jealous of the type 2s and type 3s. But the reality is... The reality is that we've all been called out of sin and into the glorious light of God's kingdom. Whether it happens when you're a child in the midst of a sinful lifestyle or later in life after having rejected the truth of the church at a younger age. And so I, I don't mean to speak only to some of you because I recognize that uh, those of you who fall under the type 1 category, if I can continue using that analogy, will think to yourself, well, I, I haven't lived a sexually immoral life. I haven't, I haven't pursued these, this list of heinous sins that Paul mentions here, idolatry and adultery and, and all the fornication and all these other things. That's not part of my testimony, but I would beg to differ. You see, I listened to a pastor one time many years ago reflect on the fact that he had accepted the Lord as his Savior at five years old. His father was a pastor, a traveling minister, and in a hotel room, after one of his dad's evangelistic sermons, he said, I think I need that. And he prayed to ask Christ to be his Savior, and from that moment on has been faithful in ministry and Christian life ever since. He said, on reflecting on his type 1 testimony, I didn't need to live 20 or 30 years of immoral living to know my total depravity. All I had to do was read Scripture and look at the world around me. And let's not forget, for those in the room who may think to themselves, I read that list and I'm glad some of those items don't apply to me. Uh, Jesus makes it very clear in the Gospels that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. And if you find yourself angry with your brother or sister, you're guilty of murder. And so all of us fall into this category of guilt from sin. 
Uh, as, uh, as a pastor, one of the things that I do is I meet with people for counseling, uh, not to the extent that Reverend Squires does, but meeting with men and women for counseling over sins that they have committed in the past or that they still struggle with now, those besetting sins that lay them aside and waylay them in their progressive sanctification. And one of the things that I deal with on a regular basis is this idea of residual guilt and shame for the life lived before Christ. The reality that sin stains and its stains are deep and we scrub and scrub and find ourselves unable to rid ourselves of the remnant of that stain when we try to do it of our own power. And so many of you here this evening, I imagine, ask yourself the question, is there hope for me? Is there hope for me letting go of the guilt and shame of my past sins, can God really accept someone like me as righteous in his sight? If he knew the things that I had done, would he really offer me forgiveness? Oh, if, the, if your thoughts and the highlight reel of your sins projected above your head right now, how quickly would the people in the pew around you move away from you? And you know it, and I know it, and God knows it. And we find ourselves saying, really? Full forgiveness? Justification? Accepted as righteous in his sight? Can it be? Well, Paul tells us in our text this evening with resounding clarity that the answer to those questions is yes. And it's because of the cleansing and sanctifying and justifying blood of Jesus Christ alone that we can find freedom from guilt and forgiveness from all of our sins. In this evening's text, I want us to be uh, confronted first with the bad news. Uh, The news that this wicked list of sins addresses all of us. It's important as, uh, as we think about uh, the, the, the sins that Paul highlights here, that we recognize the severity of the bad news needs to be uh, highlighted in our text this evening. Because it's as the severity of the bad news is highlighted that the brightness of the good news stands in raised relief against it. And so this evening, I want us to see two things in our text. First, that this list of sins covers us all, but second, that the blood of Christ covers all our sins. The list of sins here in this text covers us all. It's meant to remind us to remember from where we've come. But then we read that the blood of Christ covers all of our sins. Let's look again at verses 9 and 10. Paul begins by asking a a sort of a rhetorical question. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not know that? You're aware of that, right? You know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is telling these Corinthians that those who have guilt of sin, who have committed sin against a holy and righteous and just God, cannot be in his presence. It's not unlike what he says elsewhere, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of his glory. There is none who are righteous, no, not one. And the righteous cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And so he tells the church here not to be deceived by this spirit of antinomianism. Don't be deceived that those who live in unrighteousness can somehow uh, marry that position up with the reality of their Christian faith. 
You can't claim out of the one side of your mouth to be forgiven and washed and cleansed and made new and living for Christ and out of the right side of your mouth be living this sinful, wicked, heinous lifestyle. He said those things don't accord with one another. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by this hyper-grace nonsense that draws people away from faithful obedience to Christ, that teaches that in Christ you can live like you're out of Christ. Paul says, don't be deceived. You know, you know, you've been taught this. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then, of course, the people ask this uh, imaginary question. What do you mean by unrighteous? What do you mean by wicked, Paul? What sort of people are you talking about? Them? Them? Out there? Those people, right? That's who you're talking about. Of course, we know they won't inherit the kingdom of God, but we will because we're at church every Sunday. What do you mean by the unrighteous? So Paul gives them this list. Let me read it again for us. The sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. That's the sort of people I mean. Now, this list that Paul gives is particularly relevant to the Corinthians, but as I said, we're not far from this, are we? Uh, we live in a day when sexual sin, which, which uh, makes up a, a large portion of the list Paul provides for us here, is not only tolerated, but promoted and celebrated. And to even suggest that some of these sexual perversions are not somehow beautiful makes you the bigot, you the hater, you the wicked person. Think about how backwards things are in the 21st century. Things that 10 or 15 or 20 or, dare I say, 3 or 4 years ago wouldn't be tolerated in the worst parts of our nation's darkness are now celebrated. And those who speak against it are now condemned as hateful and ourselves are called wicked for calling out the ugly perversion of sexual sin in our culture. You young people face this to a degree that I could not have imagined when I was your age, and that in my generation uh, and the generation of most of your parents, it's still not quite as in our face as it is for you. Paul says he, he has no problem saying that these sorts of sins are violations of God's holiness and his order, and these sort of things will not allow you to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we might think to ourselves, yeah, Paul, I mean, he's writing this letter just to the Corinthian church. It's not like today. I mean, there was no cancel culture in Paul's day. Uh, And so if he says something like that, he's not going to be canceled. He's just speaking out against sin. Uh, My friends, the day in which Paul lived was as uh, grotesquely perverted as an era in history has ever been. Nero, the king, the emperor of Rome, in the day when Paul himself died, uh, was married to a boy that he had had surgically altered to look like a woman. And after his wedding, he paraded this boy that he had transitioned into a girl through the streets of Rome and then took him home with him to be his spouse. And cancel culture in Paul's day meant having your head lopped off. Paul had the courage to speak out against the sins of the day, 
before the culture that hated to hear it because it was necessary. It was necessary to say in the Christian church, these things are not okay. They're not to be tolerated because they're wicked and they go against God's design. And now let me pause for a second because before we kind of rally around this notion that sexual immorality and homosexuality is what Paul's talking about, he also talks about people who are greedy using the same language. It would be nice if Paul just gave us the list of top five most abominable sins that we could think about, and we just reserve those for the real wickeds, right? The rest of us, we were kind of, I mean, bad enough, I guess. Yeah, hell-deserving, but not that bad, right? And so we can look, excuse me, at a list like this and think to ourselves, well, Paul's really talking about the worst of the worst. No, no, no. He goes from sexually immoral and adulterers to homosexuals, and then he says, by the way, if you're greedy and you're kind of mean to people and you cheat, you're just as bad. Don't miss that. It's easy for us to get all fired up about people who act and look and do differently than us. But when we find ourselves on this list, it hits a little closer to home. And so Paul is speaking to them and to us about the sexual practices of the day and about the disposition of sinful men and women throughout the ages. Corinth was like a Petri dish. If you wanted to be sexually immoral, Corinth was the place to go. And we live in a similar culture. And so the relevance, I think, can't be missed here. But this list, uh, I would suggest, is simply representative rather than comprehensive. What do I mean by that? This list that Paul gives us is representative of the sort of sinful behaviors of people who are against God. And he gives us this, uh, this breakdown of types of behaviors. You have sexual behaviors, worship behaviors, and coveting sort of uh, self-control behaviors. Thievery and greed and reviling, so forth, drunkards. And then you also have the sexual immorality and adultery and homosexuality. And so he kind of covers the spectrum of things that people in the Christian church have come out of or struggle with. And he does that on purpose because what Paul is doing is not dissimilar to what James does in James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Remember, James tells us that you who are guilty in one part of the law are guilty of violating the whole law, right? James doesn't say, you know, there's a category over here for first commandment violators and then second commandment violators and then third commandment violators and then fourth commandment violators all the way around the ring to 10. And depending on where you stand on that, you know, if you're just like a one through four person, that's pretty bad. But if you get up to seven, now we're in big trouble. Paul says, if you're guilty over here of idolatry, which he says in Colossians is covetousness, that's idolatry. So if you've ever been jealous of your neighbor, bingo. You're guilty of the whole law. You're guilty of violating the entire law, he says. And so be careful now, before we start to point our finger at category one or this, the top of the list, all the while not realizing the guilt applies to all mankind because in Adam all have sinned. Our doctrine of total depravity teaches us that we're all short of the glory of God, that each one of us is in need of mercy from me to the elders up here, to the youngest, most innocent child, to the oldest, sweetest lady in this room, we are all in need of God's mercy because all of us are sinners in the hands of an angry God. 
God has a right to be angry at sin, doesn't he? Because he made us to bear his image and reflect his goodness. And we pervert that, not just in our sexual perversions, but in our greed, in our coveting, in our anger, in our fear, our lack of trusting him, in our quarrelsomeness, our resentment towards authority, our bitterness towards our spouses or our neighbors, our gossip, our laziness. We violate God's created plan for his people. And so we're all rightly in the crosshairs of his wrath. What sort of, what do these things mean? I want to take just a brief minute to explain a couple of these points because I want to really... uh, clarify the fact that Paul is dealing with all of us in this text. Perhaps you're not quite convinced yet. And you think, okay, I understand if you lust, then you've committed adultery. Uh, that I get what Jesus is saying there. But some of these things just seem pretty far off. And I, I don't think this is really dealing with me. Well, Paul says, first of all, the sexually immoral. Uh, sexual, sexual immorality, if you have an older translation of the Bible, your, your Bible probably says fornicators which is a word that has kind of fallen out of popular use in our day and age, probably because it sounds so terrible. Like, we, we can use the term sexual immorality, and it sounds kind of, well, that's inappropriateness. But when we hear the word fornicate, it sounds quite vulgar, doesn't it? Because it's meant to. Because what it represents is a broken approach to God's design for sexuality and sexual fulfillment. And so when we violate that by viewing pornography, by engaging in sex or sexual activity outside of marriage, by looking at things we shouldn't or doing things with our own bodies that are a part of our sexuality, we violate God's design for us. And so this is not limited to people who are addicted to the worst kinds of pornography, but for any who think about or use their own sexuality for their own pleasure apart from God's design. It's comprehensive. It's a comprehensive sort of definition. Idolaters. He talks about idolaters here. This is, on the face of it, it's those who violate the first and second commandment. Those who worship things other than God and worship him in ways other than his design. The violators of the first and second commandment. But I would suggest that idolaters are also violators of the seventh commandment, which is do not commit adultery, because they have elevated having sexual relations with people outside of God's design above the rule of God himself. Or the eighth commandment, those who steal, because what they've done is said, I want and desire things other than what God has given me, and I'm going to take them. Or the tenth commandment, don't covet, because they look out at the world or out at their neighbor and see what they have and are dissatisfied with God, thereby failing to worship him alone. And so idolatry is not a first and second commandment problem. It's a ten commandment problem. Idolatry. Again, Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, talks about covetousness. Covetousness, just being jealous of what your friend has, is idolatry. Why? Because what you're saying in your jealousy is that what God has done is not good enough for you, and what that person has would be better. What that person has would be better. I look across my neighbor's fence at his donkey, and I want that. And I raise my fist at God and say, look how you've failed me. That's the opposite of a posture of worship, isn't it? 
And so Paul says idolaters are just as guilty as anyone else. Adulterers, I think, the one that needs the least amount of explanation here. Uh, Homosexuality, again, the language is very clear in the text. Paul is talking about men and women who engage in sexual relationships with people of the same gender. There's no ambiguity here. Paul is not talking about some obscure definition, which many in Christian churches are trying to promote right now. They're trying to say that what Paul means here is some sort of hyper-perversion thing. Perhaps it's a bestiality thing. Perhaps it's a pedophilia thing. No, Paul is talking about the language used of Sodom when men lie with men as with a woman. It is a violation of God's design for marriage and for human beings. When God made man and woman in the garden, he did just that. He made a man and a woman and put them together in order to come together in relationship to procreate and create a population of image bearers that would cover the globe. And when we violate that, it is an abomination of our bodies before the Lord. That's what he's talking about. Make no mistake what Paul is saying here. And we think, okay, those are some bad ones. Not me, though. And then he says, what about thieves? Well, I've never broken into anybody's house. I've never taken anything that's not mine. And he says, actually, what uh, what about you who spend all of your time on Facebook when you're at work? Well, hold on a second. And that can't be what Paul's talking about. They didn't even have Facebook back then. What about you who spend all your time watching YouTube when you should be doing the job that you're being paid to do? Are you not stealing from your employer the time and the money that he's paying you for work that you're not doing? That's thievery. You're stealing. You're taking something that's not yours, that's not yours by right, that's yours by debt that you earned through a good hard day's work and taking it without giving what is owed in return for it. Greedy people having an intense desire for wealth or power. Once again, let's comment on the fact that this idea of greed is celebrated in our culture today, isn't it? It's celebrated to be the sort of person who climbs the corporate ladder and reaches the top and breaks the glass ceiling and lays hold of those things that aren't mine, but I want them to give me power and satisfaction and fulfillment. That very posture is sinful in God's sight. Revilers, these are people who are angry or abusive. Swindlers, those who are deceptive regarding money and truthfulness. Cheating people. Again, I hope you see that this list isn't just a bunch of big items, but it addresses all of us comprehensively because Paul wants you to know that you just like them, all the people in your mind that run through your mind when I talk about sexually immoral and homosexuals and thieves and so forth, and you're like, oh yeah, those guys, they're the worst. All those people out there, you are them in God's sight apart from Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying to us. That's what he's telling them. Don't be deceived. These sorts of people, like us, don't deserve the kingdom of God. My friends, there is no escaping that each of us in our natural state belong on this list. I must point out that the culture in which we live has made these sins that Paul addresses problems, conditions. 
These are things that need to be overcome by therapeutic counseling or by uh, letting go of, of the world's norms or whatever it may be. We call these things problems rather than sins. And that's a danger both outside the church and within. When we start talking in terms of problem behaviors or conditions that we have, and we talk about how I'm not able to control myself because I have a sexual addiction. Paul says, no, you're immoral. Or I have alcoholism. He says, no, you're a drunkard. I am corporately competitive. He says, no, you're greedy. And we start to think in terms of problems and oopsies and conditions and just uh, my culture, my nature. I mean, we've made this, again, I, I'm, I'm leaning on this particular topic for a reason, but we've made this whole notion of sexual sin a sort of uh, uncontrollable, natural reality that you were born with and unable to impact or affect. And certainly God can't change you. There's, there are whole swaths of people in the so-called Christian church who are right now promoting the notion that you are born with a particular bent and God made you that way and by no means would he sanctify you out of it because that would make you untrue to yourself. And if you think that God can rescue you from homosexuality or any of those uh, sorts of sins, then you're a bigot. You're hating on people that God loves. I don't deny that God loves all sorts of people, but he also expects us to be conformed into the image of his son. Again, Pump the brakes, and such were some of you. Let's not look outward right now. Let's not turn our gaze away from our own hearts at those people out there and that denomination over there and that person that I know that won't let go of their sin. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. The Cambridge Declaration of 1996, if you were here with us on Friday morning, you heard me read this quote. Uh, It was a group of pastors that met in Massachusetts to discuss the secularization of the Christian church, sort of in response to some writing of David Wells. Uh, And they said this, as evangelical faith has become secularized, its interests have been blurred with those of the culture. The result is a loss of absolute values, permissive individualism, and a substitution of wholeness for holiness, recovery for repentance, intuition for truth, feeling for belief, chance for providence, and immediate gratification for enduring hope. Christ and his cross have been moved from the center of our vision. And that was the problem in the Corinthian church, which is why they had sexual sins that wouldn't even be named among the pagans going on, and it's the problem in the Christian church today. My friends, Christ makes us whole, but what we need is holiness. Christ recovers us from the pit, but what we need is repentance. And such were some of you, Paul says. Look at verse 11 with me. If that period after the word you were the end of this text, it would be totally fitting for God, who is alone holy and eternally blessed. That'd be enough for God to say, you're all sinners, period. Look at the next little word, but. 
perhaps the greatest small word in the Bible. But, I refer to this and did this morning in Sunday school. I wish that the word were not but, because there's no other way of saying this. As a covenant but. That sounds silly. It's not meant to be. Now you're not going to be able to get that out of your heads. It's a covenant but. It is a statement of God's faithfulness in spite of our faithlessness, of his mercy over and against our wickedness, of his grace in light of our depravity. But, but, but the blood of Jesus covers all of these sins. This morning we sang hymn 55, To God Be the Glory. And as I was standing there singing this morning at the 11 a.m. service, it struck me for the first time the significance of the line in the second verse and its relationship with this text. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus forgiveness receives. But this is what Paul is saying here. We have been washed, he says. He's reflecting on Ezekiel 36, of course, that we're cleansed from all our uncleanness, all of it, All of our uncleanness, we're cleansed from it, washed, white as snow, made new because of the blood of Jesus Christ. All of these things, if every single one of the things on this list was true of you last night and you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, they're gone. Washed. You've been sanctified, he says. Now, we think of sanctification typically as a progressive, uh, progressive issue, right? We have justification, which is positional, right, I've, and which we're coming to in a moment. I've been justified, elevated to a status of accepted as righteous in God's sight. And sanctification is the sort of progress of the Christian life that leads me from the muck and mire of the gutter all the way up to the glory of heaven. And when I get there, I'll be glorified. And there's truth to that. But what Paul is saying here is not that you're being changed incrementally, but that you've been set aside. John Murray, uh, in his systematic theology, refers to definitive sanctification as the bulk of what Scripture talks about when it addresses this topic. What Murray means to say is that when the Bible talks about you and me as Christians as being sanctified, he's not talking about a changing pattern of habits. The Bible is talking about you've been taken from ordinary and profane use and set apart for the Lord. So these sinful things like greed and idolatry and homosexuality and adultery and fornication and so forth have nothing to do with you anymore because you're now set apart for the Lord. You've been sanctified. You've been taken out of one and put into the other. And that happened by the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been justified, that act of God's free grace wherein he pardons us from all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. These things are true, absolutely true, of every single Christian. My friend, if you struggle with the guilt of past sins and with the shame of that cloud that hangs over your head and you ask yourself the question, can there really be hope for me? Am I really able to be forgiven? Is it really possible with all the things I've done? Paul gives us this comprehensive list that includes seemingly small things like greed and seemingly heinous things like homosexuality. And he says, you were just like that, but... And he says that for you, and boy, I'll tell you what, he says that for me. 
you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the confidence that we have. That the God who promised to cleanse us from all our uncleanness, to wash us white as snow, to set us aside as holy to himself, to trample our sins under his omnipotent feet, to make us new, to clothe us in his righteousness, to forgive us from our sins and transgressions and iniquities, to remember them as no more, to conform us into the image of his Son, to give us an inheritance among the saints in heaven, to bring Bring us to that place that he's preparing for us even now to dwell with us for eternity as our God and we as his people, recipients of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He seated us on the throne of his son and given us a kingdom to be a sun and shade for us, to be our light and eternal blessing, to feed us at his table, to serve us himself, the feast that he is preparing, to take us as his bride, to be our God. You have nothing to fear of the sins that are behind you. There's only glory ahead in Jesus Christ. He's purchased us with his blood. He's washed us and made us holy and declared us righteous in his sight, even to those to whom this list bears an uncanny resemblance. Oh, I need to hear that every day. Don't you? Don't you need to be reminded Think about who he is. Think about who you are. And the fact that he offers himself to you as your God, as your Savior, as your friend. I don't know about you, but the enemy has my conscience on speed dial. He reminds me of my sin far more often than I wish he would. But the Spirit, by the word, applies the truths of these texts to my heart and reminds me that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Brother and sister, do you need to be reminded of that today? There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. Nothing in my hand I bring Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless and sinful look to you for grace. Foul is this whole list of sins. We to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Would you offer forgiveness to the sort of people on this list if they had done these things against you? I wouldn't. If I were God, I'd be that cartoon God that fires lightning bolts from his fingertips against all his enemies. Wouldn't you? Who would have imagined? Who would have imagined that God saves us from this sort of unrighteousness, this sort of wickedness, and he does it out of his free grace, out of his overflowing love, and out of his covenant faithfulness to his word? I want to conclude with this. This is a word for us in a place like this, in a church like ours, in an age like today. If God can treat sinners like us this way, how should we treat our fellow sinners? Don't leave here hearing me say that, oh, those immoral people and those homosexuals and those greedy swindlers... Boy, they're in big, big trouble. Hear me say 
that if it weren't for the grace and mercy of God, we'd all be in big, big trouble. Texts like this should not give us anything to boast about, but should rather humble us before the Lord and before our fellow man and encourage us to go out with evangelistic zeal to see those who need the same mercy we've received receive that mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for the encouragement that it is to our hearts that we who are as far from you as far can be would be welcomed into your family, accepted as righteous in your sight, and to receive the forgiveness that you yourself have won for us on the cross. Would you bless us now as we go forth from this place, Lord? Bless the the food that we're about to eat in our fellowship meal. Bless those who have prepared it for us, Lord. We thank you for this place where we can come and worship and gather and eat around the table together and celebrate our union with Christ and with each other through him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.